Hello and welcome everyone and thanks for joining me for today's talk ESG environmental social government governance fat or solution that's the topic of this talk and I'm more than happy that you are going to or that you decided to join me today and yeah to use the next 30 minutes to understand the whole topic more and yeah, to follow me while I'm walking you through my thought process that I went through while I tried to answer and to tackle this topic and the questions and of course um, yeah what I discovered uh, during the preparation for this talk or during my research. But um, before we jump in, do me a favor and um, yeah, let me know if you can see and hear me loud and clear, just to make sure that all the tech is working. Um, yeah, feel free to use the chat function to ask me questions. We will have a QA and a um, after the presentation, so feel free to yeah, ask all the questions that you might have, or maybe all disagreements or agreements or other thoughts uh, that you want to share, feel free to use the chat or the comment function. I am going to monitor it and of course uh, yeah, I will try to answer all the questions to the best of my abilities. And as always, if you enjoy the content, feel free to hit the like button and to share it with someone that might also enjoy or benefit this type of content. That being said, and without further ado, let's jump into my slides. So. Today, as I said, um, yeah, is about ESG and the question, is it only a fad or is it actually a solution for certain problems that we might have? And um, yeah, I thought it makes sense to structure it or to structure this talk into three parts. Number one, what is the goal of this talk? Or we yeah, just focus a little bit more on the question itself and we'll talk about the history of ESG, some background information yeah, to set a little bit the stage. And then step number three, the conclusion, and we will see um, yeah, what actually what, what ESG actually can do, how it works, and uh, if it actually can fulfill the claims um, yeah, that it makes. So the overarching question for today um, is yeah, generally the question, does ESG work? And um, yeah, that question um, is probably already too broad. And therefore, um, yeah, when you talk to people, I think you really get a sense that there are really two types of questions um, yeah, hidden in that one question. And um, yeah, the first question or one uh, question, if you want to call it like that, is um, or I want to call it the, the ethical question. Meaning, um, is there empirical evidence that ESG investing or ESG implementation has a positive impact on the environment and or society? So meaning, is there any evidence, um, yeah, not just anecdotal, but can we actually measure, um, yeah, to say it a little simple, does ESG or ESG investing actually make the world a better place? I think you have heard that phrase in some shape or form, and I think that's where the part of the question actually aims at. And then the second part is the financial question. 
um, because again, if we talk about ESG, we often talk about um, ESG investing. And uh, therefore, the financial question is then more, okay, is the empirical evidence that ESG investing or ESG implementation generates any or some form of alpha, or maybe it has a better risk return profile, less volatility, better sharp ratio, yeah, lower maximum drawdown, whatever kind of metric you want to use to, um, yeah, to measure the success of, uh, of your portfolio or of your investing. Um, that would be then the financial question. So um, Sarah is saying that we have a bad connection and Ben is saying that we have a good connection and he can hear and see me loud and clear. Um, Leary also clear. So I hope um, that all technical issues shouldn't be from my end and that yeah, everything is working so far. Again, uh, one tip at that point maybe um, we have usually you know, 10, 20, 30 second delay depending on the platform you are watching and maybe if you just tuned in one tip turn your um, or go down at the bar of your video and turn the, the watch speed to 1.5 speed therefore you can catch up to the actual live live stream um, if you're watching this live and of course um, again feel free to put every question or any thought, disagreement, whatnot um, that you might have in the chat. Okay, so to recap really quick, um, yeah, when we talk about, uh, or when the question is, uh, does ESG work? I think we have to split it into two questions. We have to split it into question number one, the ethical question, is there empirical evidence that ESG investing or ESG implementation has a positive impact on the environment and or on the society? And then question number two, the financial question, is the empirical evidence that ESG investing or ESG implementation generates alpha, has a better risk return profile, less volatility, better sharp ratio, whatever kind of metric you want to use in that scenario. So I'm assuming that most uh, yeah, guests today know what ESG um, is, but nonetheless, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what yeah, ESG actually stands for and then about the history of ESG investing. So as the title of the talk today, so today already uh, gives away, uh, ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. And um, yeah, if we can trust Google uh, Trends or Google Search, then um, yeah, ESG really became a thing, at least in the, in the public mind over the last years. And um, as a general idea or as a general thought um, that I want you to, to keep in mind um, for yeah, this whole presentation or this whole talk is to, I'm not really here to judge, to judge, I'm here to understand. And I think the best way to understand human behavior is um, yeah, if you understand their incentives. And that's also what I'm trying to do with this talk. And I hope that's also the approach that you try to take during, during this talk to understand, okay, what are the different parties involved and why are they acting in the way they do? Because, um, yeah, depending on who you ask, the goals of um, ESG or ESG are um, very different. And uh, I want to show you now a clip um, of uh, yeah, the ESG conference in 2018, the introductory speaker. And um, yeah, I found that very insightful 
and uh, yeah, here comes the video. The origin of this conference is a sense that many of us have had over the last few years that all of a sudden ESG concerns have gone from the province of activists to the mainstream. Uh, it first hit me when I was at a conference and heard the, the transformation of the ESG argument from the old, these are worthy goals that need to be pursued to what struck me as an utterly different language, which was that ESG factors are risk factors. And any board that is doing its job needs to consider risk factors. Uh, and that move, that rhetorical move, brought, I think, ESG into the mainstream. Because as soon as it's put in terms of risk factors, corporate, traditional corporate law guys like me know how to think about it. ESG factors are risk factors. Um, I want to encourage you to watch the whole um, video on, on YouTube or the whole conference, uh, free videos. Um, they're not, they don't have many views because it's quite boring. A lot of lawyers talking about pretty boring stuff, but nonetheless, very insightful if you're actually interested in the topic itself. So, um, yeah, depending on who you ask, we get two answers. Answer A, uh, yeah, why ESG? To make the world a better place, to protect the environment, a worthy goal pursuing. And um, I think in general, there's always that kind of idea or maybe implied notion of that will cost us something. I mean, think about um, you know, when we talk about, uh, I don't know, organic uh, food, for example, or any other uh, yeah, price that you are willing to pay to get better quality or in that case, yeah, to protect the environment. I think that's a kind of notion that is kind of implicit in that kind of question answer or in that position. And then answer B, um, and that is usually the answer that you get when you talk to finance guys, consultants, lawyers, and you know, people in suits like me. Um, and answer B is to optimize financial returns and manage risk. It's pretty straightforward and pretty simple as that gentleman in the video just said. <clears throat> so, um, let me have a look at the chat. Yeah, I hope uh, my con conclusion makes sense at the end of the day. Um, so before I get to the conclusions, because there's, I think, a little bit more background information that we need and a little bit more information in general before we can make any conclusions or before we can answer these questions. Um, yeah, let me tell you a story about a trip to London. And in 2012, I was invited into the BlackRock, BlackRock offices in London and um, yeah, had the opportunity to talk to the traders and the investment managers, fund managers, asset managers uh, there and so on. And what you can see is one of the trading rooms, the Bloomberg terminal down there uh, and so on, the flags of all different traders and of course a lot of screens. And um, when I talked to yeah, people in the industry back then and especially um, yeah, in, in London at BlackRock uh, at that time, um, 
you have to keep in mind that was you know, the aftermath of the financial crisis 2012 and the aftermath of the, the aftermath of the financial crisis brought at least in my opinion more focus or discussion or even consensus on two topics or two ideas formulated like that and the first one is active strategies don't work meaning they barely generate any long-term alpha meaning um yeah or that's basically one of the reasons why we saw that big shift into passive strategies into etfs and so on in the last years and again um yeah also born on kind of the the notion or the the experience of two major crashes over the last 10 years in 2002 three and now 2008 nine and um yeah very aggressive uh, trading and investment behavior during that time and then yeah, these, these big um, crashes. So um, yeah, inside number one, active strategies don't really generate any long-term alpha, especially when we're talking about big asset managers that can actually move markets, meaning their asset or their investment decisions are moving that much capital capital that, yeah, that literally influences prices and, and markets itself. Um, so meaning yeah, if you're a small investor, you maybe can generate some, some arbitrage and something like that here and there, but on a big scale, yeah, there's everything returns to the average. And then the second part, um, kind of a conclusion or yeah, a result of, of that um, idea. And also again, of the notion that, or yeah, the notion was then, okay, then let's focus on, on risk management, risk management and asset allocation. If we cannot, generate um, any outperformance then at least manage the risk um, yeah, to prevent things like 2008 where Lehman Brothers literally was yeah, rated AAA a few days before they actually crashed, crashed and were bankrupt and a lot of other risks that were, weren't really um, yeah, priced into the, the, the prices or really available um, in the pricing itself because the assets were yeah, illiquid or because the, the data not really available, whatever the, the reasons were, um, it was a much bigger focus now on, on risk management and uh, on asset allocation than, uh, than before. So again, two ideas, active strategies don't really work. And then following that, oh yeah, okay, then let's focus on risk management. And uh, during that time, um, BlackRock and Bear with me while I'm talking about BlackRock all the time. Uh, during that time, um, BlackRock um, bought iShares and or created um, iShares. They bought it from, from Barclays back in the day in 2009. So you can see in this, this writer's article here. And um, that made them the biggest, biggest asset manager, but not only the biggest asset manager, also the biggest asset manager in the, in the passive uh, space, meaning they are now the biggest um, ETF and in index uh, investing company globally. And um, during my visit uh, to, to the London offices, what they also stressed, besides the fact um, yeah, that moved to, to more passive um, strategies or instruments, um, was uh, the risk management side in form of their platform, um, Aladdin, that was really, I think guys were really proud of. Um, yeah, and kind of talked about how much data points they can track and how much portfolios uh, and so on. And um, if you are in the industry, you probably know or have heard about Aladdin. I'm not talking about the Disney character um, because that was probably the first thought that he had in mind um, when you're not um, from the financial 
industry. And um, Aladdin stands for Asset Liability and Debt and Derivative Investment Network. And when you Google that and when you look at Wikipedia, then you can read the following. Aladdin is an electronic system built by BlackRock Solutions, the risk management division of the largest investment management corporation, BlackRock Incorporated. In 2013, it handled about 11 trillion in assets, which was about 7% of the world's financial assets and kept track of about 30,000 investment portfolios. And the software itself um, yeah, was launched in 1988. For everybody out there who thinks you can build your own trading software and make money, there are people in the game that do that a little longer and you can have a little bigger pockets. Um, but again, that was 2012, 2013, where they managed again here 11 trillion in assets. Um, let's yeah, fast forward and uh, move a little bit more to today's numbers. You can look at this insider article uh, about BlackRock, and you see, or you can see um, BlackRock's uh, CEO Larry Fink here. And um, yeah, by today's numbers, I mean December 2021, BlackRock uh, BlackRock now manages um, one at uh, ten. Sorry, so many zeros here. Uh, BlackRock now manages ten trillion uh, of other people's money, meaning ten trillion in asset under management, and that's more than the gross domestic product of every country in the world, except for the US and China. So that's what they actively managing in their own portfolio, not in their own portfolios, but for their client portfolios that they manage. And then when we look at Aladdin, meaning the, the risk management pl platform itself, um, it runs a massive technology platform that oversees at least 21.6 trillion in assets. In 1999, BlackRock started selling Aladdin, which analyzes and tracks investors' portfolios and can help professional money managers to spot risks. Today, it is a juggernaut widely used in the money management industry and beyond. Vanguard and State Street Global Advisors, the largest fund managers after BlackRock, are users, as are half the top 10 insurers by assets, as well as Japan's 1.5 trillion government pension fund, the world's largest. Apple, Microsoft, and Google's parent company, Alpha, the three biggest US public companies, all rely on the system to steward hundreds of billions of dollars in their corporate treasury investment portfolios. So if you thought that um, that guy on the left um, controls a lot of money with his 265 billion um, that he actually owns, then uh, yeah, when we add these two numbers, I mean, the around about 10 trillion that they active, that they have under management and then the 20 trillion, trillion um, where they use their software Aladdin, then um, probably it's fair to say that um, yeah, this gentleman here, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink controls around about 30 trillion US dollar. And um, therefore now I think um, you begin to understand why ESG um, now is, yeah, present in more and more uh, companies if one of the biggest asset man managers in the world um, focuses on risk management and considers ESG as risk factors and um, yeah, therefore prefers companies with a good ESG rating, and we'll talk about that in a second, um, then 
you might now get an understanding um, yeah, about the whole situation. But um, let's ask um, Larry Fink um, itself um, if he's actually only doing this for the money or if he actually has uh, the environment and the people in mind. So here comes another short clip. So one of the things that you have been very outspoken about and have singularly perhaps changed the conversation in boardrooms around the country and around the world is about the environment um, and really pushing companies to focus more on the environment. But at the same time, you say in this letter this year, you say we focus on sustainability not because we're environmentalists, but because we are capitalists and fiduciaries to our clients. And so... And maybe this is a chicken and the egg kind of thing here, but how much of this is your view that the environment really does matter? And how much of it is your view that the profits matter and you think it's going to come because people are focused on the environment? I am just as much as, a, uh, as focused on environmental issues as I've ever been. And I believe we need to be moving forward. And I'm really pleased to say that $4 trillion of money has moved into more sustainable strategies. Um, and it's accelerating. I talked about in my, in my 2020 letter about the tectonic shift that we are seeing. We are going to see it. And if anything, COVID and the way we live and work today has accelerated the investments towards sustainability. But that being said, I had a great deal of frustration in 2021 about the means in we were moving forward. I wrote over the last few years about to move forward in a more sustainable decarbonized world. It, it requires a combination of government and private sector. And th that's just not happening. We are not seeing the totality of society moving forward together. We need to be working with hydrocarbon companies, not against them. We need to be working with the communities that are involved in hydrocarbons, not against them. But we also need to be working with all with, with new startup companies to rapidly deploy and create new technologies so we can get to a decarbonized world by 2050. At the present pace, Andrew, we're not going to get there. Yeah, I added um, that last part. Maybe not totally fair, but um, yeah, let me know what you think. Um, do you think Larry, yeah, Larry think um, is that doing for the money or to optimize financial returns or because he actually wants to reduce carbon emissions and so on? I'm interested in your opinion. All right. Um, Let's talk a little bit about um, the old problem that we have when we talk about sustainable, environmental, or, or impact investing in general. Because the, the idea, of course, um, is not new that, that people or investors in general um, want to make sure that their money, that their investments, um, yeah, maybe just are not invested in certain um, companies, uh, weapon manufacturers, gambling, uh, alcohol, or, or whatnot which are often, yeah, again, ethical um, considerations. Um, but the problem was always, and as far as I can tell, is still today, um, the 
the question, okay, who decides what is fair, what is eco-friendly or what is sustainable? And I just want to use uh, my, my own country, Germany, as an example for that. For example, in 2011, uh, 2011, I'm sorry, 2011, we had the, uh, the Fukushima uh, catastrophe in, in Japan with the reactor. Um, that was also the time when we had uh, local elections here in, in Germany and in, in the, the state um, that I'm living in and uh, the, the Green Party um, basically had a landslide win because of that, um, you know, because of that event that happened in, in, in Japan, because now all of a sudden nuclear energy and energy generation in, in general and uh, yeah, pollution and all these topics came up and the uh, Green Party won that particular state. And two years um, later, um, we had um, federal elections, meaning a complete new government. And uh, because the government was basically afraid to lose a big chunk of the seats um, to the Green Party, they kind of shifted their political approach a little bit and um, yeah, announced that they will shut down all nuclear um, energy, uh, nuclear uh, power plants in, in Germany till 2022. That's why we're talking about all that stuff now with Russia and so on. I'll get to that in a second. And um, yeah, which then, which they, which they did and uh, yeah, which then caused the fact that Germany now has the highest um, energy prices and electricity prices in the world, that over the years we ramped up our um, coal plants and our CO2 emissions there. Um, we got more independent uh, from Russia and Russian oil and Russian gas and so on, which causes a whole other geopolitical uh, problem. So you see these, these, these problems or these questions are extremely complex and uh, complicated and not easy to answer. And of course, often very political. And uh, so it's very hard for an asset manager to decide, um, okay, can I actually follow any of these guidelines? Do they actually make sense? Or five or 10 years down the line, uh, yeah, cause the opposite effect that I or my investors actually wanted to achieve. So um, yeah, let's talk about uh, ratings and data, especially when we're talking about um, ESG ratings. Um, so when you have a little bit of background in the financial industry or, or corporate or yeah, economics and in general, you know about the uh, three big credit uh, rating agencies, Standard Poor's, Fitch Rating, Moody's. And um, yeah, although they are often criticized and uh, probably rightfully so, especially again in 2008 and other occasions, they kind of failed with their ratings or their predictions. So um, yeah. You should, you're always good advice to take their ratings with a grain of salt. Nonetheless, um, that these ratings are kind of regulated and uh, most of the time these rating agencies agree with each other. Meaning if a, cover, if a, a company or, or a country gets uh, rated, they usually are in the same ballpark and uh, yeah, don't diverge too much from each other with their, with their rating. Um, when we look at the ESG rating market or where most of the uh, yeah, asset managers or in generally speaking, everybody gets their data from uh, what their ratings from uh, regarding um, ESG ratings is uh, usually MSCI and uh, Sustainalytics also company of uh, a part of Morningstar, meaning we also have two big financial players here or two names that, that are very known in the financial industry. And um, as you can see here, MSCI kind of also um, yeah, copies, not, not copies, but mimics that um, 
that rating system that we know from um, credit rating agency, AAA, AA, and so on, and uses that the same system to uh, yeah to to create uh, or to to give their ESG ratings and say okay that company has a AAA rating meaning and again that's the important question their ESG risk is very low or the triple C rating meaning their ESG risk is very high. And I think uh, MSGI is 40% of the complete market. And again, BlackRock is their biggest uh, client slash customer. Um, when we talk about uh, data in, in that area, it's generally speaking very hard to, to get any data, to get any empirical data, to get any reliable research besides from a lot of marketing speak and marketing material. And of course, everybody again has an incentive to sell their product or, or their story. Um, so therefore, that was one of the yeah, newest and, and probably most reliable papers I could find on the quality of the actual ESG ratings. Um, because again, at the end of the day, everybody relies on these ratings, um, maybe even you or, or your company uh, or the investors that then, or the asset managers that then decide uh, where the money gets allocated. And um, so uh, feel free to yeah, read that paper uh, for yourself from yeah, MIT and uh, University of, of Zurich, um, December 2020. And I highlighted the most important part, part here. So what they did, um, yeah, they basically rated all the big um, ESG rating agencies or, or data provider. And then you can see here the correlations between the ratings are on average 0 0.54 and range from 0 0.38 to 0 0.71. This means that the information that decision makers receive from ESG rating agencies is relatively noisy. Three major consequences follow. First, ESG performance is less likely to be reflected in corporate stock and bond prices as investors face a challenge when trying to identify outperformers and laggards. Again, I think um, the credit ratings are or correlate 0 0.9 or 0 0.95. So they most of the time they agree and basically they hardly agree with each other when it comes to ESG ratings or ESG data. So then the question becomes, okay, if the data is so unreliable and everybody can use their own models and nothing is really regulated. So um, how do these um, ESG rating agencies actually get to their ratings? It's totally made up. We made it up. We made this one up. It's a made up tale. It's a total fabrication. Yeah, sorry, I couldn't uh, resist to use this one. Um, but I think, again, that's kind of true when you look at the scientific papers and uh, when you talk with people in the industry. Yeah, they change their formulas so often. They change the models all the time, the criteria, um, how they actually um, yeah, attribute it and so on. So I think it's fair to say it's made up, which is fine. All certificates are made up uh, at the end of the day, but at least there should be some a process or some standardized rating system uh, behind it, in my opinion. So, and that leads to situations like this. Um, for example, these are yeah, two ESG ratings from uh, Sustainalytics because that can be posted on, on their website. So you can yeah, check every company that you want uh, without any charge. Um, so we have Tesla and we have Lockheed Martin. Um, Tesla probably knows um, everybody in the audience. Uh, Lockheed Martin is uh, yeah, the largest defense contractor globally, meaning one of the biggest weapon 
manufacturers um, worldwide. And um, as you can see, um, when you consider Tesla, um, I don't know, sustainable company with their efforts to yeah, get away from fossil fuels and to empower solar and change the whole uh, automotive industry. And then on the other hand, you have a weapon manufacturer and the weapon manufacturer, at least from this rating agency, gets the better ESG rating. So different product company, but basically the same ESG rating. Again, Lockheed Martin technically a little better if I can see that right here, but basically the same rating. So just to understand, um, maybe you really do it or you want to invest or you think ESG is there to help the environment or to help people and use a rating to make a decision. And uh, yeah, at the end of the day, you think, yeah, great. I uh, yeah, maybe support that car company uh, and maybe the same fund also distributes your money into a company that supports um, yeah, weapon manufacturing and the whole military industrial complex. So I think that's a good example, just to show what kind of complications you have when you want to talk or if you want to use ESG as some kind of rating or, or metric system. So I think, um, or I hope, at least um, that kind of sets the stage or gives you a little bit background information where I think um, yeah, the, the current hype um, about or around ESG and ESG investing and ratings and all that stuff uh, comes at the end of the day. So we'll use yeah, the next 10 minutes um, to, yeah, to recap a little bit and to drive my conclusion home. So um, again, feel free to use that time maybe to ask your questions. Um, yeah, use the chat, the comment um, section to add your thoughts. And then after the presentation, I will try to answer your questions and we will go into the Q&A. <clears throat> so I think it's fair to say, and I think um, we really need to stress that to understand what is happening in, in certain areas um, right now. ESG was not invented to protect the planet and society from companies. It's the other way around. ESG was invented to protect companies from the planet and society. I think that's important um, to understand um, before yeah, we progress. Um, so yeah, in my opinion, asset managers were looking for new ways to measure and to manage certain risk factors after the financial crisis. Again, they understand all right, there is there are certain risk factors, they are hard to measure, for example, corruption, corruption governance or environmental factors. Um, again, I've just talked about uh, Fukushima or, or oil spills or things of that nature that you can't really see in the price or maybe in the um, profit and loss statement of a company, but they are hidden somewhere. And asset managers were looking for a way, okay, how can we measure that and how can we implement that information then um, into, into our risk models and then, of course, into our portfolios. <clears throat> so index and data providers are incentivized to create models and indices that look for or are adjusted for these risk factors, meaning if the data provider can now go to the asset manager or to the fund manager and say, hey, we have a great ETF here or a great uh, data model here that can show you these risks that you are looking for, that you think exists, then I get paid a lot of money as a data provider or as an uh, yeah, index creator. And as probably everybody um, 
will agree that data quality and the ESG ratings in general are therefore extremely questionable because there are so many hidden incentives um, and it's generally speaking questionable or hard to just uh, yeah, standardize or to get to this kind of data. <clears throat> so this is basically um, the, the structure, how the whole thing works. Um, again, all of that is public knowledge, um, nothing um, really new here, but just um, yeah, to show you the structure besides um, slide after slide. So you can see the investors um, at the top. And these are, when I say investors, I'm usually talking a lot about retail investors because honestly, you and my money don't really count uh, in that in that big game, but we're talking about institutional investors, pension funds, um, big asset managers, uh, insurances, uh, yeah, and uh, big, uh, yeah, big asset allocators. And then they go to an asset manager and say, hey, please invest my or our money into companies. Then the asset manager goes to one of these rating agencies, say, hey, rating agency, please check or research uh, what companies I should invest in. Then they get a nice report from the rating agency. The asset manager pays the rating agency and how the asset manager takes the investors or their clients money and invest that in companies or whatever kind of security we're talking about. Again, I'm oversimplifying a lot during this talk, um, but I think that should give you a, a general understanding um, how the whole thing works. And now I want to spend yeah, a second on fiduciary duty because I think that's something a lot of people don't understand or maybe underestimate the importance in the whole context. Um, for example, if you are a defense attorney or a lawyer or generally speaking a professional, it's your job to defend your client or to act in your client's best interest, not to make moral decisions of it if it was right or wrong what the person actually did so if they actually committed, for example, a crime. Same for a doctor, for a surgeon, for example. The job of a surgeon is to act in the best way of the client, the patient in that scenario, not judging them of their life or if they are a good father or whatever, a criminal or not. You get, you get the idea. And um, the same is true for, for asset managers. They have a fiduciary duty um, to their clients, meaning to their investors, and they cannot just say and say, well, um, yeah, I take my client's money and I think I should invest in that startup because that um, is going to change the world. And then, uh, yeah, nothing happens or the, yeah, the startup goes bankrupt um, or whatever. And um, then, yeah, the client or the investor comes and rightfully so asks the, uh, the asset manager to say, why did you invest my money in, in strategies and potentially ESG strategies that are not proven or where there's no evidence that they actually work. And we're actually talking about more ideological um, questions here than anything else. And then, of course, that could trigger a lawsuit and whatnot. Um, so again, I want to encourage you uh, to, to, uh, go to um, yeah, dive a little deeper into that topic. But I have a 90-second yeah, um, clip where um, yeah, one of the big names in the ESG space, um, Robert Eckle, actually talks uh, about that and in my eyes gives a good insight um, why we have the situation that we have right now.
So there's law and there's ideology, and you get it in fiduciary duty on both counts, right? The nuances that this panel is talking about, most people don't understand, um, but it doesn't matter because all the big asset owners and asset managers I do say, look, sustainable investing, obviously we're doing this for return. We've got smart people. We're pushing this down to the portfolio manager level. We're not trying to give up returns to get impact. There's nothing concessionary about it at all. Um, leave the language alone of value investing, you know, kind of maybe drop socially responsible investing because people say sustainable investing and it kind of evokes, you know, what these terms meant in the past. The most complicated issue for me, and, and I'd love to talk to Max about this at some point, is what happens if you've said, look, we can show you that we've done ESG integration, although data's a problem. I mean, these rating agencies don't agree with each other. Everybody knows mm -hmm. that. Rocky knows that. Um, but we were very careful. We took it into account. We were doing it for returns. We had a certain time horizon, a certain risk level. But then we tweaked it for impact, right? Then we tweaked it for impact. We thought everything was constant. We didn't give up any alpha. But then we tilted it for impact, you know, which is the talking about at the pension fund. How, how would that play? Right? They, and, and they can give a really credible case. They've done very sophisticated analysis. And they said, then on top of it, we tweaked it for impact, which is basically doing good in the world. You've breached. That would be a breach. I'd be a breach. You okay. considered, you considered a, a collateral interest. Right. So I'm simply just, I'm just considering the collateral interest. Considering the collateral interest is a breach. So again, I'm not a lawyer. If you are one, um, please let me know what you think about that. But what is basically happening here is, um, yeah, Robert actually is asking, even if we can prove that it doesn't negatively affect the performance, again, no asset manager and no capitalist is willing to give up performance or returns here. You always have to look for, for these sentences or these uh, you know, segments because these are the important ones, um, but can we nonetheless um, use investments that are potentially doing good in the world and uh, no, because of the fiduciary duty that you have as an asset manager, you can not do that without risking a lawsuit, of course. So back to the initial questions. <clears throat> Is there empirical evidence that ESG investing or ESG implementation has a positive impact on the environment and or society? Again, that is kind of the ethical question, if you want to call it like that. And um, I would say, my personal opinion, there's not enough evidence, um, if at all, that shows that there is actually an impact. There's a lot of marketing, there's a lot of want to, a lot of hope, and uh, I'm not saying that the goal isn't worthy, um, but I don't see any hard evidence yet. Maybe we will see that in the future. I would, I would like to see uh, that or any material. Again, if you have anything that I don't know, I'm happy to change my opinion if there's new evidence or new information surfacing. But right now, again, the question is empirical evidence that ESG investing or ESG implementation has a positive impact on the environment and or society. I think there's not enough evidence. Is empirical evidence that ESG investing or ESG implementation improves financial outcomes for investors, meaning the financial question, um, then I would say there is maybe some evidence. Um, again, evidence isn't really convincing yet, but at least I see more trends towards, okay, we can at least yeah, minimize uh, risk in portfolios um, if we, for example, exclude um, certain companies or, or certain 
industries, for example. Um, but again, very weak evidence. Um, but don't take my word. Um, again, I want to show you a statement from uh, someone from inside of BlackRock. Um, yeah, and he shares his opinion from the inside, basically. A provocative new op-ed from BlackRock's former CIO of Sustainable Investing claims, quote, the financial services industry is duping the American public with its pro-environment sustainable investing practices. In the piece, Tarek Fancy calls out Wall Street for greenwashing the public and making sustainable investing, quote, merely PR. He joins us now to discuss. Tarek, thank you for joining us. You were at BlackRock, which is front and center in promoting socially and environmentally friendly practices for investing. Why are you calling out the industry? Well, I think that um, having had the experience of being there, I can say quite confidently that ESG is not as good for investing processes as people claim. And that's very important because it effectively is a financial jargon sort of proxy way of saying, is, does it pay to be responsible? The reality is it doesn't pay that much to be responsible. It works in a few instances, in a few strategies. It's being blown out of proportion. And none of it has any real social impact. The issue is that the entire system doesn't work. And where BlackRock is culpable is that it's promoting a thesis that tells people that these products, whether done correctly or incorrectly, whether they're sloppily made and they include a name that they shouldn't or the opposite, they're telling people that these things have social impact. And I can't stress enough. There is no evidence that any ESG ETF has any positive social impact that I've seen. There's no evidence that by buying a low-carbon ETF, you are actually going to lower emissions. There is evidence that fixing the rules of society through government regulation actually can do that. We're doing it through Wall Street makes no sense. They're capital allocators, and they're going to chase yield and profitability. And sure. if you put a carbon tax on, every portfolio manager at BlackRock and elsewhere will adjust their portfolio to change the changed reality. If you go and you tell them that, you know, fighting climate change makes money and that this is great for the world and, you know, you should lower your carbon footprint because it's good for the world, the vast majority of those strategies don't do it because they're too short term, they're structured in ways that those risks don't matter. And in general, it, you know, it, it matters very little and it creates little social impact. But what it is doing is creating a giant societal placebo that's lowering the chance that we're actually going to have any kind of regulatory reform. And I think that that's irresponsible. We're 13 years after the financial crisis. We're decades after we've known that climate change is the greatest market failure in history. Mm -hmm. And right now, business leaders are peddling a silly self-market, uh, markets correct themselves idea. And that I have a problem with. I think BlackRock is doing an okay job. But when Larry says in January that I prefer self to capitalists self-regulate, I think he's doing a massive disservice to society and that the people who are going to be left holding the bag as we delay are going to be the youngest and poorest. Yeah, I think that's quite a statement from BlackRock's former chief investment officer um, around sustainability. So um, now let's get a little bit um, yeah, more into a personal note, what I personally think or I personally see the whole situation. So um, yeah, now feel free to add all your questions um, to the chat uh, or your thoughts or maybe your disagreements. And if you yeah, made it uh, so far with me, if you stayed so long with me, um, feel free to hit the like button um, to yeah, maybe subscribe to the YouTube channel, um, share it with someone um, that you think might also 
benefit from that information. And of course, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn when we haven't done so as yet. And uh, yeah, please leave a kind of message um, yeah, so that I know where we know each other from. All right, on a personal note, um, I don't think you can't outsource um, responsibility and that is kind of the idea behind the whole ESG um, thing as far as I can tell. Like you know, we go through a checklist, we get a little batch, we slam that on uh, investment and now um, yeah, you can invest with a good conscience or, or something. And um, yeah, I've never really seen an example where that works. Um, I mean, again, in the food industry, when we talk about fair trade labels and so on, um, you have the same problem. It's always a, yeah, a big thing to, or a big risk to outsource the responsibility if you actually want to achieve something with your investments. And I think for, for some reason over the last uh, years, maybe um, a lot of people, I have the impression um, unwillingly confuse business with charity. And um, again, back to the fiduciary duty, the purpose of a business is to make money. Cooperation of a company is to make money, especially when we're talking about a publicly traded company and not a charity. So um, if your goal is um, yeah, to do good in the world or to help someone else with your money, um, probably charity is the better way to go um, than investing in an ESG ETF or, or investment or something like that. And um, when you talk or yeah, look a little bit into charity, you have the same problem. Which charity can you actually give your money to make sure that it, at the end of the day doesn't uh, only feed uh, administration? but actually uh, gets to the people that you want to help. And there's probably also the same thing. It's probably more, more effective you give the money directly to someone you want to help instead of using a middleman in an ESG investment or a charity or, or whatnot. Um, how I not think, but kind of yeah, cynically maybe look at the whole ESG uh, thing and how I think it kind of got distorted. Um, yeah, I want to tell you a little story here at the end. So in a company far, far away, CEO once talked to a consultant. And the CEO asked the consultant, I think we should improve our ESG rating to become more attractive to investors and increase our access to capital, for example. And the consultant said, yeah, that is probably a smart business strategy, treating your employees with dignity and compensating them fairly, making sure that business practices don't pollute the environment and establishing good governance should pay off in the long term. It will take some time and won't be cheap or easy to achieve, but probably worth the cost and effort. The CEO said, you know that CEOs of publicly traded companies usually stay three to five years before they switch companies. And I'm already one year here. Do you have any other suggestions? The consultant says, yeah, you could also add a rainbow flag to your company's logo. And the CEO says, let's go with that then. Again, if you want to understand human behavior, behavior, you need to understand their incentives. I think um, if you can take away anything from today's talk, um, then maybe that. So that being said, um, thank you for your time and attention. That's so far the end of my 
prepared presentation. And um, of course, now I'm more than happy to yeah get into the discussion, to answer your questions, and um, yeah to share or to see or hear your thoughts. Again, you're always free to hit the like button to share it with someone else, and um, yeah check out my website. Maybe subscribe to my mailing list um, where I weekly-ish um, yeah share my thoughts on topics around economics, Caribbean technology. Um, and so on. Uh, you should find the link somewhere down below or just go to simonkerber.com. All right, that out of the way, um, let's jump into the questions. Um, we have uh, quite a list of comments. Let me check if we have any questions here. Um, ben says, what is, wow, that is quite the comparison, same rating. Yeah, you're probably talking about Tesla and um, Lockheed Martin, um, yeah, that happens again when you have a correlation between, what was it, 0.38 and 0.71 or something like that. Um, as an asset manager, of course, you want often assets uh, that don't correlate or maybe have even a negative correlation, but of course not um, when we're talking about ratings. Okay, Ben is asking, do you believe that ESG can be fixed to align with the original objectives? Well, it depends on what you mean with the original objectives. Um, how it's been sold, of course, so the original objective is uh, protect the planet and uh, environmental social causes uh, and whatnot. The real original objective, um, at least what I can tell when I look at uh, history and from my personal experience, is to manage risk and to give um, asset managers a tool yeah, to assess and uh, manage risk in their portfolios. And um, yeah, I think, as I said earlier, I think it achieves that uh, goal somewhat, meaning to improve maybe portfolio uh, performance uh, or reduce risk in some areas. Um, I don't really see uh, evidence on a, on a bigger, on a broader scale. Um, but when you mean um, can be fixed to align with the original objectives in the sense of uh, yeah, do good in the world or um, yeah, protect the planet or whatever you mean by that, um, then again, I think personally that never was the goal um, in the first place. And it's still not the goal um, till today. Um, that might be how it's often portrayed. And that's a good PR campaign. And again, that's why we see changing logos. And all of a sudden over the last years, um, every big corporation that is publicly traded um, yeah, has some PR engagement, how they are uh, so inclusive and how they try to protect the planet and uh, whatnot. And yeah, they don't do that because they are all of a sudden became saints. But again, these ESG ratings are important to generally uh, get access to capital markets and to other opportunities. And if you don't uh, yeah, try to appease to these, these, these ratings or these criteria, um, if you agree or not, then you might uh, get kind of um, left behind or yeah, other competitors uh, maybe get preferred in some situations. I think, again, look at the incentives um, of the people um, or of the companies, then um, yeah, that gives you usually the most and the best insight. <clears throat>
Yeah, thanks for the feedback. Um, really glad to hear um, that it's insightful. Um, yeah, if you're watching this as a recording, again, also let me know what you think, if you have any questions, if you agree, if you disagree, if I'm maybe missing some data, if I don't have looked at the right data. But again, I think um, I don't really have a dog in this fight. And uh, I tried to be as objective and um, yeah, neutral as possible, I hope. I achieved that today. All right, um, it looks like we have all questions answered so far. Um, yeah, that being said, um, I hope everybody watching right now live or maybe later on as a replay, um, I hope it was also beneficial for you. Again, feel free to um, yeah, use the comment section to let me know what you think. I'm always open for feedback. Um, usually the best way to watch this talk or other talks in the archive um, is to go to the YouTube channel. They are all saved there and uh, yeah, you can watch them there. And again, feel free to subscribe there. And that being said, if we aren't connected on LinkedIn, that's also a good opportunity to do that. Um, let me check. No, I think we don't have any more questions. So I hope you have a great day, week, and I hope to see you soon. Thanks for joining me today. and. Till soon. Bye-bye.